This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. Hello, and welcome to The Thin Place, the Film Geek Radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. Your hosts for this episode are Todd Truffin, that's me, and Ken Moorfield. That's me. This is episode number 33 for May 2013. Our topic for this episode is Stromboli, the 1950 film by director Roberto Rossellini. This episode is not a spoiler-free discussion. In fact, we were having trouble figuring out how to talk about this film without talking about the ending. So if you have not seen the film and do not want plot spoilers, this would be a great time to go check out one of the other great podcasts on Film Geek Radio. So Ken, you have a, an article in Christianity Today coming up soon um, about uh, Rossellini and... You've written about him in other places as well? Uh, no, not. I haven't specifically written about him before. There is a chapter on Rossellini in Volume 1 of Faith and Spirituality and Masters of okay. World Cinema, which I edited, and right. I actually wrote the chapter on Carl Theodore Dreyer, but um, uh, Jason Simpkins did the chapter on Rossellini in that book. Okay. So what interests you about Rossellini, and why are we talking about him in The Thin Place? Well, I've always, I've, since we've had the thin place, I've wanted to do Rossellini. Uh, I think because he was a natural inclusion in the first volume on directors who deal with issues of faith and spirituality. Also, I, I personally like his films. I find them to be slightly more accessible than some of the other entry points to great world directors of the 20th century that uh, are included in the Faith and Spirituality volume. I'm thinking of Robert Brisson, Michelangelo Antonioni's in number, you know, volume two. And more recently, there's been some renewed interest in Rossellini because the internet website artsandfaith.com had done one of their annual top 25 films of all time about a particular subject. And uh, one of Rossellini's films, Voyage to Italy, ranked very high. I think Stromboli was actually on the list as well. Uh, so that may be part of why I was interested in looking at Stromboli, mm -hmm. uh, because uh, it's gotten some attention. There was also a, a restoration of Stromboli that recently played at uh, LACMA in, in LA. So I'm hoping that that means that other people will get a chance to see this film that heretofore has been uh, a little bit harder to track down. Okay. Um, so we, we are talking about Stromboli. Um, just well, before we go on, I just wanted to mention the article that's coming out in Christianity Day is actually about Rome Open City, which is an earlier one of, of his films. And uh, that should be up early next week. Great. So the film Stromboli, in a very brief thumbnail sketch, we have a story of um, a woman who is uh, takes place right near the end of World War II. Yes. And she is in a uh, prisoner camp. She falls in love with a 
it's uh, an officer. I think it's a refugee camp. Refugee camp. Yeah. Okay. And she falls in love with an officer. And well, well she we, marries we, an officer. She marries an officer. We will perhaps discuss whether where love falls into this whole this whole picture. She marries an Italian officer. Um, he takes her back to his home on this very small and desolate island, Stromboli. He's a fisherman, and one of the main tensions in their relationship is that she was came from a rather uh, high-born, wealthy family. Um, she now finds herself the wife of an, a fisherman on this really desolate island, um, and we get the story of their their tension, the tension of in their relationship of her trying to fit into this small fishing village and not doing very well, and you know how that plays out. I think is basically the thumbnail sketch of the of the film. Yeah, um, I hate to keep making corrections. <laughs> she says at various times that she was from a better family. But one of the more subtle themes in the film is that her story about her past changes yes. from time to time. She has to give a deposition in the refugee camp because she's trying to get a visa to go to Argentina. And she gives one narrative of how she ended up in this particular camp. Uh, later on, when she's on Stromboli and talking to her husband, she gives a slightly different narrative. Yes. So it's clear from her actions and her emotions that, and the way in which she continually talks about Stromboli and the people there and the way that they live as being barbaric, that I think it's safe to assume that she's from a more urbane or sophisticated or upper class environment. And that's part of the hardship of her living in this new environment. But I don't know that we're entirely sure that about her past or about anything that she says about her past. It is certainly difficult. I, I think we do get some clues with some of the clothes and things that she has with her. Yes. Um, that you know they are more they are of a higher class level than the people around her. And and I think that is one of the interesting aspects of this. I mean, there is, what is her story? How much can we believe? Um, she certainly acts as somebody who has come from a rather sheltered, upper-class family. That doesn't mean that she did come from that. I think it's, it's a fair there. inference. I yeah. just want to make sure that we're clear that of putting it, you know, putting it in the air of what we definitively know right. versus... What we can reasonably right. deduce from her actions and not just her words. Yeah. And as we say, I mean, one of the, I think one of the things that's fascinating about this film are the ambiguities of what we know, what we don't know, how that feeds into how we evaluate or judge the characters. Right. So the film itself starts with a Bible verse on the screen, um, Isaiah 65, 1. And we thought it would be a good place to kind of start with this film um, because it certainly does tie into the end. And with it being part of the opening titles, it, it certainly is, you know, Rosalini's setting us up to think about this verse while you're watching the rest of the film. Um, Isaiah 65.1 reads, I was ready to be sought out by those who did not ask, to be found by those who did not seek me. 
I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that did not call on my name. Now what do we do? <laughs> oh, was that a question? <laughs> well, I think one of the things that we do is, is we pay attention to that verse. Uh, that seems obvious, mm-hmm. and yet Rossellini, like many of the people in his style, has a reputation of being somewhat obscure, of not underlining uh, particular things. There's there's an interview with between Rossellini and um, Maurice Scher and Francois Truffaut and Cahiers du Cinema in which they claim that he has the reputation of being less discernible. <laughs> and he has an interesting quote that says, this is Rossellini. Perhaps I do not always make myself sufficiently understood. If I were to throw in ten more details, everything in my films would suddenly become extremely clear. But they, these ten details are just what I don't want to add. Nothing could be easier than to make a close-up. I don't take any, lest I am tempted to use them. And, I, you know, I was fascinated by that quote. Those who know me, this is going to sound like a digression, know that my dissertation was about Christian authors of fiction. And one of the things that I looked at was narrative strategies for how you ensure an interpretation that you want. And I tracked that through Victorian age and modernism. And what I found is that in the 20th century, as authorial or narrative intrusions become less aesthetically smiled upon, there is this championing of the art that is not directive, that doesn't say, oh, looky here, don't beat me over the head. And it seems to me like that Bible verse might be an indication that that's one of the ways that Rossellini is in a transitional phase, where whereas you know, in some of his earlier work, it might just be, well, that theme should develop from the thing itself without me giving you 10 details, you know, or a close-up or a metaphorical close-up. Because really what a close-up is, is a way of visually accentuating. This is more important than that. And so the text is a way of thematically underlining and saying, this theme is more important than that, you know, look for it. But then you don't want to be one of those people that's like, okay, I'm tempted to use that and just beat you over the head and tell you what it is. So you find a verse that is a little bit obscure or thematic in a general way that still forces the audience to think about, okay, well, what does that mean? I mean, I think that verse is a little bit less opaque than, say, um, or a little bit more opaque than, say, you know, Robert Brasson's famous subtitling of A Man Escape, The Wind Blows Where It Will, you right. know, which is... Well, and one of the things I find interesting about Rosalie's point there is if you look at the second verse of Isaiah 65, which you don't have in front of you, so you're not seeing it. um, I held out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good following their own devices. And I'm just thinking if he would have included that second verse 
Yeah, could you repeat that again for the um, people I, who also don't have, yeah, it, don't, don't have it in front of them? The, 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 the verse 2 is, I held out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. Okay. And I think, in some ways, that could be a total summation of Karen in yes. this film. Um, it would not at all be hard if you had that second verse to say, oh, this is... Karen is carrying out this this verse, um, but by not including that, you know, by only having that first verse, it, it certainly pushes us in a direction. But it doesn't it doesn't beat you over the head with it. It doesn't say you have to go this direction. Right. Well, and and one of the things that I think is interesting about verse one and, and both verse two is that Rossellini is coming off of three war films, mm -hmm. Rome, Open City, Paisan, and Germany Year Zero. And one of the things that fascinates me about the war trilogy is that how soon after the war he is able to develop, if not, if not a sympathetic view towards the Germans, at least one that's less caricature than you would see in a lot of war movies today. Right. Um, particularly in terms of Germany year zero. And so uh, one of the things that I think is in that verse and that is in his films really leading up to Stromboli and I was also in Stromboli is that very intermeshed notion between a people and an individual, you know, mm, yes. is, is Karen. And I think this is where we get back to Karen not having her past. Is she German? Is there an intimation that she was German. She says at one point she went to Czechoslovakia, or, you know, and married a Czech officer, and you know, immigrated in in to there. Is it possible that that's the story that she's made up? And in some ways, then, is this about you know the ways in which the war has disrupted society and uh, has talked about a people, i.e., the Germans, or a person. Karen, who hasn't really been seeking after God, but God has been finding ways of finding them. Right. But that also gets complicated by, you know, I think in in uh, Rossellini's films, I'm, I'm particularly fascinated in that post-war ability to be able to lump together the people as in Europe and not just thinking about, okay, the Italians or the Axis or the Allies, but to say, okay, are there ways in which we didn't seek God, you know, where, mm -hmm. um, yeah, she may be Eastern European or she may be German or, you know, not Italian, and, you know, we are the Italians, but in many ways, we, there's not as much of the we-they dichotomy that, that I would expect, so I'm really fascinated in, in that verse from Isaiah about the use of the people mm -hmm. in a very Old Testament way, as opposed to, you know, some of the New Testament verses that would be like really focused on the individual. Right. This, yeah. That the, the, in the Isaiah, in the first verse, it's those, yeah. it's, it's that plural of, I, I'm sought, you know, I was ready to be sought out by those who did not ask to be found by those who did not seek. Um, you know, very much a collective um, group. And that's one of the things that makes Stromboli continue to play well. I would, well, I would argue all of Rossellini's films is that 
they are situated in a historical moment in time, mm-hmm. you know, post-war. But I think he's – Rossellini seems to me to be less interested in the distinctives of a particular moment of time and in the commonalities that that moment in time shares with great periods of time. One of the things I mentioned in my Christianity Today essay is that he he has a tendency to link whatever is happening – on the screen in that historical moment of time to something in a much more distant past, whether it's uh, the bickered married couple in Voyage to Italy that is playing out versus a tour of the ruins of Pompeii. You know, that sort of puts a different perspective on their relationship problems when you're thinking about all these people who lived thousands of years ago and whose life were snuffed out in an instant. In in Rome, Open City, you get, you know, this tale of the resistance in the Open City uh, and the final shot is of kids walking towards the city with the Dome of St. Peter's. And so you've got a, a link to the future with the kids and a link to the past with, you know, a right. reminder of, you know, there was another time when Rome was an open yeah. city, uh, you know, and an occupied city. And all of these things that are happening to you right now, you think that they're unique, but these are actually universal human experiences. And I think in Stromboli, uh, there's that certainly the the passage in Isaiah that's linking it back to an Israelite past mm-hmm. of you know history of stubbornness, and there's also this volcano that is tying or reminding the Karen and then the viewers of uh, what Robin Gilmore calls in his book about the Victorian age geographic time or geologic time that right. you know, we feel very small in the overarching arcs of history. Uh, but then we notice that our little span of history is even, um, but at the end, Karin's looking at all the stars, and now, you know, that world, you feel even smaller. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and I would even add with that, you know, some of those larger things, I mean, not once on the island is her discomfort with the people or antagonism towards the people a national thing. It it. It seems to be much more about class. Um, it seems to be much more about sophisticated or not sophisticated. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are universal. Um, you know, you don't have. It, it's not about this nation and that nation coming out of a war. Um, it, it's about these other things that are going to carry, you know, to today um, and be much more timeless than oh, those Italians, those Germans, those whoever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's much more focused on the. You know, the, you know, these people are, are workers. These are fishermen. Um, these, these women have their backward ways, but I'm a sophisticated lady. Well, I would argue that post whatever 2008, you know, global recession, uh, that it's even more topical because there, you know, there is an argument to be made. Not everyone's going to buy it, but that class and economic plutocracy is actually the the greater power structure of the world that we live in today right. than is nationality or political or, or governments that multinational corporations and plurocracy and those who, you know, uh, control wealth mm-hmm. are, are in fact the masters of our world, uh, whatever. Now those interlap with our political figures right. and our political figures have some influence, but I think certainly the fact that you know, whether we live in, the United States, well, we might be better off 
economically than some other countries, but a lot of that economic development has to do with business industry and ways in which wealth has been taken out of some places and put into some other places. Sure. So the end of the film, there's been lots of stress in the, in the, in the marriage uh, between Karen and Antonio um, and things are building, but then the volcano erupts. Uh, This volcano that throughout the entire film, there's been, well, as soon as we, we meet Stromboli, the island, there's this smoking volcano and there's all these, when was, is that normal? It's like, oh yes, it's normal. And there's constant references. Oh, the last time it blew up in 1930 or 1940 or, you know. It's very Monty Python. It is. The other time the volcano burned all our houses down. We, and so, you know, from a, from a structural standpoint, you know that this volcano is going to erupt at some point. Um, you just structurally, it has to. Um, and it does. Um, and another modern connection that I might make is with when the levees broke. You right. Know, and all the people who live in the lower ninth ward. And, and you know, the, the, the people all run for the boats. Um, they, you know, the, the volcano erupts. They come back to their homes after it, when, when it is safe. And at that point, Karen basically says, I'm leaving. You know, she's, I, it, it's one thing. I mean, she is pregnant. We should mention that. She has a child on the way. Um, you know, it's one thing to deal with these backward people. But if you're going to have the very island itself trying to kill you, it seems to be more than she can handle. Um, and we get this, this fascinating scene where she, 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 knows she can't go to the water. So she decides that she's going to go over the the island. She's going to go over the mountain, over the volcano. Um, there is a city on the other side where the people have motorboats. And she struggles. Um, the, the vapors from, you know, the, the gases come from the volcano um, overcome her. And she knows she can't go. She wakes up and as you mentioned, she's looking up at the stars um, and the galaxy. And she has something of I don't know if it's an epiphany or a breakdown. We can maybe talk about that. Um, an epiphadown. Epiphadown. Um, and she calls out to God. Um, and, you know, one of those, if you're there, God, give me strength. And she's looking at the city and saying, I can't live there. I think that's basically the scene, right? Yes. Yes. So what do we make of this scene? Well, I guess there are three ways we could go with it. One is that it's a genuine epiphany mm-hmm. and a positive ending. That uh, having bucked against her fate or whatever and run away, she's like Jonah in the belly of the whale. She's like the prodigal son or whatever and has has come to her senses and said... Uh, no, I'm not going to run anymore. Uh, she prays not for deliverance, but for endurance. Mm-hmm. And given the music and a couple of the statements that she makes, I think she says at one point, looking at the stars, that, oh, they're beautiful. You know, it's very beautiful. It's so beautiful. Or when she wakes up, she either passes out or goes to sleep for a while. 
that we can infer that there is, in fact, some kind of genuine epiphany or some kind of answer to prayer mm-hmm. that is going to make her feel better. And when the film ends with her continually calling out to God, that that's a positive thing because she's learned that she needs to rely on him and that she's not going to go back. And I would say there, it, it, it's not just calling out to God. She specifically says, God, my God. Mm-hmm. That's a good catch. I think the so that's one. Two mm-hmm. would be a negative implication is that we do not see her go back. Right. In fact, she calls out to God. She takes some steps towards the town, but you know she also is talking to the baby inside of her and saying, "I'm going to protect you." Uh, but she also says, "I can't," and then cries out to God. Some more. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think a cynical Flannery O'Connor esque, you know, false epiphany would be that she calls out to God, but that lasts all of five seconds or ten seconds or whatever, and then is you know, there's no indication or any re- real reason why anything is going to be substantively different in terms of her feeling, and she is already beginning that you know backsliding, mm-hmm. or that God doesn't. There is no answer her, you know, and that's why she keeps calling her that, that she's going to be a metaphor of the person who's continually calling out to God, but not being found. Uh, someone who wants to go in that direction might then again go back to the passage in Isaiah that says those who are looking don't find, those who aren't looking do find and say, well, now she's looking. So does that mean God's not going to be found? Uh, and I guess the third option would be that it's meant to be deliberately ambiguous. I hate this metaphor. It's very cliche. But the whole Rorschach test of like, well, what you see depends on who you are, who you are and what you feel. And the atheist is going to say, see, there's proof that there's no God and no answer to prayer. And the Christian is going to say, see, that means that God is there, and willing to answer you and was there the whole time willing to answer you. But. You just wouldn't call out, you know. You wouldn't submit, basically. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah I think I, you know, I, I, I can find those being our three options. I, um, I mean, I, those are yeah. the three that come to mind. Yeah, I don't no, know if I, there's... Well, it's kind of yes, no, and both. Yeah. Um, which, that's basically our response, our answers, right? Um, I, I do think, you know, you mentioned the, the kind of the more cynical O'Connor-esque ending. I, I'm also, I'm going to push back a little bit on that just to say that it reminded me kind of in a way of the a good man is hard to find sort of ending with the grandmother where she has an epiphany and then just gets shot. Right. Um, the story ends. We have no idea what's going to happen, but the important part of the story for the narrative is she had the epiphany. Yeah. That's, that's probably not entirely fair to Flannery O'Connor, is it? Because her ambiguity or even her false epiphanies don't imply that God's not there. Yeah. I mean, she and Flannery O'Connor's universe, God is always there. The false epiphany is just the person who fails to see right. uh, God. So it might actually be better analogy might be I don't know Graham Greene or something, and mm. you know the um, the tenth man or the um, but, end of the affair. You know, yeah. one one of his that's much more kind of intellectually and deliberately ambiguous as a means of of promoting agnosticism of saying, you know, our condition in the universe is that we don't know and we can't ever we can't really know. know. 
but I, I, I don't think that's Rossellini's position, so I'm, I'm reluctant to read the movie mm-hmm. that way. Well, and, and I think I mean, one of the things that I was really feeling through this film was that, I mean, our, our character, our main character, Karen, is, is not a likable person. I, uh, at least I had a very hard time liking her, um, the way she reacted to the, the townspeople. Um, and yet it was a, it was an ambiguous sort of thing too, because I could recognize she's in a hard position. She is trapped in many, many ways. Um, being a woman in this culture, she had no real way to support herself. She marries this man who he, the first time we ever see their interaction, he makes a comment about, well, I'll, I know how to keep you in line. And with this sort of, you know, joking about domestic violence, but then eh, that comes to fruition. Um, and she's, and her defense, she is the one in this romance through the barbed wires who, when he says, marry me, says, you don't know me. Right. You've talked to me two or three times and you're, you're ready to marry me. But she's also the one that says yes after, and, sure. and is very, consciously, deliberately saying, well, I'm going to apply for my visa to Argentina first, and let me see how that that works out. And if that doesn't work out, well, then I'll know what to say to this other guy. Well, and and that's, I guess that's what I mean, is on one hand, there are things about her that we don't like. On the other hand, she's in some difficult situations, and she's trying to make her her way um, in a very hard world Mm -hmm. um, in in post-World War II Europe. Yeah, but part of what I'm trying to get at with that that self-consciousness is that there are ways in which what Antonio does is as selfish as what she does. It's like, well, I just want, I don't really care about you. I want, I mean, I I think I care about you, but I can use that language. He wants to bring a wife back in there. And I, I mean, I don't, you know, and it's just that because she owns it and is more deliberate about it, it's easier to romanticize his. See, I'm even reluctant to call them faults, but I, you know, but mm-hmm. I think his 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 faults or you know the ways in which he wrongs her, and and I don't think that's too strong of a word mm-hmm. by saying, you know, I'm going to just pick a person and take them out of their life and put them in this other life and expect them to behave the way I want them to you know, behave the way that I want them to and, and um, whatnot. Now we might say that she's more educated and more sophisticated. So she should, she should know better in ways that he does it. But, but yet, yeah, it's, I mean, she's a complicated character. Yes. Um, and, I've totally lost track of where we were going. With yeah, that. I'm sorry. I <laughs> the other thing I would say about Karen being a complicated character in terms of that whole sympathy yeah. uh, question, in terms of, I think it's, I'll give you a chance to find your thought again. I think it's about her being unlikable. Is that I always struggle with Karen because the things that she feels, we're back to it being topical, are things that if I'm honest, I feel or have felt too. Mm -hmm. Not about being trapped in a marriage because I'm very happy in my marriage, but I would rather live in suburb or the city than in boondock 
wherever, Mm -hmm. you know, where there's nothing to do. I have been around people who have worked very hard to provide for me. And that was not a sufficient inoculation against my selfish desire to have more things, whether it was an Atari 2600 or the college tuition or a car or whatever it is that you want. And so the things that she wants are, it's not even just the things that she wants, the human desire to want more Mm -hmm. and to be angry or frustrated at people who don't want more and to keep telling you, well, be content with what you have. It is wrong to want, not, not just it is wrong to, act out if you don't get what you want, but it is wrong to want yeah. those particular things is a very, is a very painful thing. There's a line in Rome open city where Don Pietro says to die a good death is, is easy. What's hard is to live a good life. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the reason why I can never quite be as angry at Karen as I want to be is because it is because I recognize the older that I get that the battle that she's doing is, is is to live a good life and that it's easier, particularly when you're young to make the huge sweeping sacrificial gesture. It's harder to do the daily putting the death of the, the, the old man or even if not to putting the death of the old man, the daily work, because I think it is work, of having a good attitude and trying to be content with what you have instead of just angry at everybody, including God, for what you don't. And I am back now. Yes, where I, good. <laughs> <laughs> we, we had set up these three possibilities of reading this ending, you know, epiphany, no epiphany, some sort of ambiguousness. And I feel myself going more towards the epiphany, but I think we too often think of epiphanies as being these sort of big happy endings. Like, oh, she found God, everything's going to be better. And I think this is one of those films where, you know, her circumstances beat her down and drive her to a place where she's calling out to God. Um, And, Certainly, I think we can argue about how sincere this call out to God was. I I read it as being fairly sincere. Um, yeah, I'm working my way towards that. I think that's probably where I would fall to. And and for me, one of the most powerful parts of that scene is when she is saying, "Okay, these people I'm living with are horrible, but I'm more horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't know all these things. I am worse." And so she's. She's a kind of, a, you know, her self-consciousness, she's, she's acknowledging, I think these people are terrible. Um, and that's one thing. But then to say, I'm, I mean, it's, you know, it's Paul. I am the chief of sinners. There's lots of other sinners. I am the chief of sinners. Um, and, she, you know, she calls for strength, courage, and, and, and a little peace. You know, she doesn't ask for everything to be fixed. It's, I need a little peace um, to, to... To survive, I guess. And I, I think it's, it, it is what you're saying. It's that, it's that hard, there's the hard work of being content as an adult. Um, she has a child on the way. She knows that she's going to have to care for this child. Um, it's not going to be just about her anymore. And, but it's, a, it's that, 
that hard difficulty of, you know, she's not, she's not calling for a life, you know, better roses here. She wants, you know, help me survive. Right. Um, and, and that's the kind of an ending, I think, or a, some sort of spiritual epiphany that we're not used to looking at as being, oh, that's a quote unquote happy ending. Um, where everything is victorious, the victorious Christian life. Right. You know, this is the grinded out Christian life that we're seeing in this film. Todd, you anticipated exactly what I was thinking and and you're like convincing me because the question I asked myself was, okay, assuming this is a true genuine epiphany and or conversion experience, what is it about it that dissatisfies me and mm-hmm. why is that so much of the entertaining the other reading? And I do think part of it is because I've been infected by and we've been infected by we meaning our culture, our time period, late 20th century, you know, Gen X or Generation of Prosperity, with this notion of evangelism, of evangelism is selling and you know, how often we've heard about the health and wealth gospels and the blessings and the way that you bring people to God is by telling them Mm -hmm. all the great things God is going to do for them and how much better their life is going to be if they accept God and Jesus. The word gospel is good news. And and it's not like all those things aren't true, but I don't believe in the health and wealth gospel. I believe that, you know, that's a perversion of a core truth. Uh, whatever your situation is, I think it's better with God than without God, but that gets too easily translated to, well, once you turn your life over to God, everything that's, everything's going to get better. That's what's going to fix everything. And I think if we have that in our theology, we want that in our narratives. And even if we're sophisticated enough intellectually and we're trained enough intellectually to recognize that's bad theology, and to deny it, if you've still been fed it enough times, there's something about this that's like, oh, that's that's different. And I and I think one of the things that's really challenging about this film is that Rossellini is is true or he's authentic. That that's you know, you mentioned Paul. Once Paul becomes a Christian, it's not like all his problems go away. No. It's not like his life gets substantively easier. There is certainly, you know, there's plenty in the Bible about my yoke is easy and my burden is light, but there's also something implied in there's the yoke. Pick up my cross and follow. <laughs> pick up your cross and and follow me. Uh, that implies that there's also going to be hardships mm-hmm. and sacrifice, uh, you know, as well. And that, um, I mean, this is maybe an, more of an indictment of me than anything else, but but some of my own reservations or sadness or hesitancy at the end of the film is because I want for Karen another answer. And <laughs> think of that. Uh, because I want there to believe that there can be or will be another answer for me, which is to say, no, you don't have to sacrifice. You don't have to adjust your expectations you don't have to pick up your cross you can have the things that you want you deserve the things that you want if you suffer enough or insist enough or demand enough or put your foot down enough um, eventually god will give them to you or a parent or a husband or a spouse or 
or, or someone will, will give them to you. And it's very hard to say, no, part of, you know, what growing up is, is, um, you know, or developing spiritually might be about coming to grips with not, again, not just not getting the things that you want, but coming to grips with why you want some of the things that Mm -hmm. you want, what you are willing to do and have done to get them, and whether those are the things that are really the best for you and that you really do want. Sure. Sure. You know, yeah, and then, and in, in the end, that may be one of the great accomplishments of this film. You want a quick fix. Yeah. Is, is that the, the main character is a very real person that is perhaps, you know, very in, in a very uncomfortable way, very identifiable with just about everyone. Um, all of us, and we want that better ending for her because, as you said, we we want that ending for us. And when she doesn't, you know, she gets an answer. It's that thing I've always kind of thought was odd about when people say, "Well, God didn't answer my prayer." Well, yeah, he did. <laughs> the answer was no, or wait, or something that you didn't want to hear. Um, and I think that's what we see at the end of this film. Um, and and it is hard, um, but it's true. Walking away from this film at the thoughts I was having afterwards, you know, trying to work out some of those more ambiguous parts, those 10 things that Rosalini did not show us. Um, it wasn't because they were gaps. It was like, I felt that there was truth here. Um, and it was then more about meditating on that and digesting that. Um, I'm, I'm not finding the information. I don't know if you know, is this film available on DVD or, I know we watch it on VHS. Right. My understanding is that it's not currently available on on DVD. Uh, there are plenty of VHS copies floating around. I mean, I I got a copy on Amazon for under ten dollars, so the VHS copies are around. I'm hoping with the recent restoration uh, that showed that that's a precursor towards a DVD release. Um, Criterion would be wonderful, but even yeah. once there is a, a re-release and a new print, that usually is a harbinger for an eventual uh, DVD release. But uh, as far as I know, now the, it's only on VHS, but uh, still widely enough available on VHS that it's not super expensive. Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing a couple of listings here on Amazon that are DVDs from other regions that were made non-region specific but they don't they've got like maybe one copy available or something. i would say too if you're if you're have cable tv uh that it has shown i've seen it at least once on turner classic movies which is cable television so if you go to www.tcm.com and look up stromboli one of the nice things about that website is that if you find a movie that you want to see uh, you can click on send me an email reminder and the programming for that web page will send you an email uh, saying, oh, let me know when this movie is available. Right. So I, I'm it, I'm guessing both of us are giving this pretty high marks for recommendation. Yes, I, I love Rossellini. Um, I would say if you've not watched any Rossellini at all, I might start with Rome Open City or Voyage to Italy. I wouldn't necessarily make this your first Rossellini film. Uh, I think you'll, but I mean, 
it was mine. It was your first WrestleMania <laughs> film, and and now I mean I think you're a little bit more adventuresome, but if you're a little bit tentative about subtitles or foreign movies, I I might start with uh, Rome Open City or A Voyage to Italy, and then if you like that, then definitely um, you know go on to Stromboli because it's 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 a fascinating film. It, it really is, and it and is. You know, sometimes fascinating and accessible. We, we tend to think those are opposites. Um, but it really is a, a very accessible story and, I, you know, told with some real subtlety. So, And, and I will say for the average film goer that's there, uh, a whole wealth of being able to see Ingrid Bergman in another context. Yeah. You know, that we're just used to the Ingrid Bergman of Notorious or was she in Gaslight? I think she was in Gaslight. Yeah. Uh, in in the Hollywood career, and not realizing that you know she had this whole you know career of movies that she made with Rossellini, and so it, if for no other reason than you get to watch Ingrid Bergman yeah. in a movie you haven't seen before, and she's really good, so it's um, worth doing. All right, anything else? Nope. All right. Thank you for listening to The Thin Place. If you have comments on this episode, please visit our website at www.filmgeekradio.com to leave a comment. You can email us at thethinplace at filmgeekradio.com. You can also follow Ken on Twitter at tweet, tweet at Ken Morefield or at his blog, the number one morefilmblog.com. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio. Yeah.